Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Searching the Sacred. We are excited to be launching into 2024 with this special bonus episode. And so welcome to the new year. Happy New Year, everybody. We are so glad that you are with us on the journey. If you're new to this podcast, we do have a Patreon account where you can sign up for a dollar a month or more and get some bonus content, study guides, and other stuff that we have for you based on the different podcasts that we do and the afterthoughts when we do those that are always available on Patreon. And this bonus episode, we thought we would try to preemptively address what we may think is coming towards us in 2024. So with all of its hopes and dreams, with all of its resolutions and excitements, we also know that there are some major wars going on uh, in Ukraine, um, in Gaza. And so we know those are happening. We also know that there's a presidential cycle coming up along with other uh, election cycles coming up and so we know that 2024 has the potential to be both grand and glorious and wonderful and meaningful and we want to hold on to that hope but we also know that it could be filled with tension and if you are going to be on social media at all you're probably going to be inundated with a whole lot of crap so we just wanted to address how to maybe show up in this season especially with people that we would like to think are operating from a similar space than us. What we mean by that specifically, I'm gonna speak for myself and not everyone else, is that if somebody is gonna use the label Christian and show up in a space, I would like to have some belief that there's a similar thing happening. And that doesn't always seem to happen. And I think the recent history has taught us that that is actually not what happens. And so, we wanted to engage a passage of scripture where there might be some instruction on how to show up as people of faith, as Christians in a complex world today. So we're going to look at the book of Romans and we're going to jump all the way to the end of Romans. And just to give a little context for Romans, this is Paul writing to a group of people that have had some major division going on. There's been a lot of divide over the Jews and the Gentile believers. And so Paul is trying to help bring a little sense of unity to this group of new believers in this way of Jesus. And so we're going to jump all the way to chapter 12 and start with verse 1. Okay, this is from the First Nations version. So then, my sacred family members, because Creator has shown us such mercy and kindness, I now call on you to offer your whole beings, heart, mind, and strength to the great spirit as a living sacrifice. Do this in a sacred and spiritual manner that will make his heart glad. Do not permit the ways of this world to mold and shape you. Instead, let creator change you from the inside out in the way a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. He will do this by giving you a new way of thinking, seeing, and walking. Then you will know for sure that the great spirit wants for you things that are good, that will make the heart glad, and that will help you to walk the path of becoming a mature and true human being. Because Creator, in His great kindness, has made me a message bearer, I give this message to each of you. Do not think too highly of yourself. Instead, understand that the Great Spirit calls us to different purposes in answer to our trust in Him. Just a side note, this is a lot of hymns, and I would might interject a her, but I'd be tra- changing the translation, but it's a lot of Creator as Him. I don't know that that's necessarily true. Anyway. 
I'll keep reading. <laughs> um, it is the same way with the body of the chosen one. We are members of this body, and each member belongs to all the others. Creator's gift of great kindness has been poured out to us in many ways, giving us different kinds of gifts. If your gift is to speak the heart and mind of the great spirit in a prophecy, then let trust guide your words. If your gift is helping others, then give yourself to help others. If teaching is your gift, teach well. If your gift is to speak courage and strengthen the hearts of others, then speak bravely. The one whose gift is giving should not hold back. If your gift is leading, lead with honor. And the one whose gift is showing mercy and kindness to others should do so freely with a glad heart. Okay. One of the things that struck me there was that it translated Christ as chosen one. Um, this is so this passage, many of us would be familiar with the, the language of body of Christ, um, both in Romans 12 and in First Corinthians 12. And we did an Advent episode on Christ and what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. And so just noticing the First Nations is using chosen one, which is very um connected to this idea of being the anointed one which we talked about. So that was one thing I was thinking when read that is like, that's actually probably more helpful than the word Christ um, for many of us to read chosen one. And what does it mean for us to be a part of the body of the chosen one? And therefore also consider ourselves as being chosen mm. as the starting place, not the thing we earn. Oh, say that, say that one more time. I think that's Just, important. Yeah. Well, when in a passage like this, that's talking about human action, what that does is it makes it being a part of the body of the chosen one gives us the identity of also being chosen before we do anything. So we're not earning our chosenness. We are chosen just as Christ was chosen. And we're a part of that lineage and connection and therefore live this way. Hmm. So more succinctly put, we're just switching the order of operations, right? It's not, I've done this thing, now I now someone's choosing me. It's, I've been chosen, and now out of that, I operate. Out of that, I take action, which well, is I a think, huge distinction, right? Yeah, and I think that a lot of Christians talk this way, but don't actually live that way. Like, like. Christians will talk about like, oh, it's all grace. It's all whatever things given to me, but then like get really panicked about what people are doing because what people are doing is what really matters <laughs> in a way that doesn't feel like it lives from a place of like, no, we all belong and we all are, I don't know, the energy of it doesn't feel like that assumption that it's starting from belovedness, starting from chosenness, starting from being in because there is no out. I mean, it, it just gets at that idea that we're so naturally tribal. Like we so naturally want to be a part of the in group, the whoever's in power, whoever's in control, whoever's right as opposed to wrong. And and because we're so fixated on that tribalness or that idea of wanting to be in the right group, if we're in the right group, then someone else has got to be in the wrong group. There's no like, we're just in the group, right? And like, it's all, it's all in. And so if it, because if it were all in, then there's less concern or energy around what's the thing that differentiates us because really what differentiates us, the only thing that we can really point to is what we either believe or what we do. And so if I know what you believe, then I can figure out if you're in with me or not. But if I can see your actions, I can decide if you're in with me or not. 
Um, and so, but if I'm less tribal about things, if I'm more inclusive, then the question becomes less like, are you with me or against me? And it just becomes more like, hey, is this helping all of us flourish? Like what we're doing here. And, and that's a different question. And it also doesn't come across as like us and them in or out. You're with me, you're against me. It's more like, how can I partner with you? Well, which the verses after where Lisa ended have that feeling to that to me of let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Like that, the energy of that is like just be open, be loving, be kind, be good. I'm curious what else rose up for, for you guys as Lisa was reading and like where we go with this. Like Lisa, you paused. One of the things that rose up for you, you paused to say, which is about the gender of creator and how that was being translated and how that might affect how we hear a passage like this. Do you want to say more about that now that you're done reading? Well, I think it's interesting that the only gendered, um, like what they're using is him and creator. We're not hearing it for chosen one and we're not hearing it for great spirit, which means then all I'm hearing is he and him in the passage, which um, sometimes that just narrows it for me a little bit. When, when I'm thinking about, um, like if I want to, like in the verse two, let the creator change you from the inside out in the way a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Um, well, when I think about somebody like changing, like that much change, like that's a big, that's a huge change <laughs> if I'm thinking about a butterfly and a caterpillar and, um, that feels super vulnerable. And like, so I either have to work really hard to think of like a gentle masculine God doing that work. Cause it feels different. Um, and I have to like really make sure that I feel like there's a, that there's safety in it. Like there's risk, but I also need to feel like, I don't know, that just feels like a big space for me right now. I don't know what that is, why that's bubbling right now for me, but it is. Um, I think sometimes there's like a mother, like there is something for me about mothering and wombing and all those things that kind of swirl in there that feels does a little bit better in a feminine sp space than it does in a masculine space. I don't know, and this feels a little really birthy. Like this passage for me feels, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think that's the, like when you read it, like if you read what, if your gift is listed <laughs> and then you read what you're supposed to do with it. So, you know, if your gift is helping others, then give yourself to help others. Oh, there's just some, I don't know. It's a pretty big passage. There's a lot of stuff in it. Mm -hmm. And I think when we think about the trajectory of scripture, there's a, there's a lot of room to, to think about gender in terms of the divine and, and not panic. <laughs> um, some people can panic when, when, someone does something the way that Lisa did of like, let me pause and just notice the he, but there's a lot more 
they-ness to the God of the Hebrew scriptures um, than, than he-ness um, because there is this multiplicity, there is this presence, there is something beyond gender that has already been a witness of scripture. Spirit has already been named as feminine in the Hebrew scriptures. Ruach is a feminine noun. And so there is this, there's room. If we're thinking that the spirit and the creator is the same God, there is room to have he, she, they conversations in ways that like just just let the Bible be accessible to you if it hasn't been accessible to you and worry about some of the theological implications later. This may be the way I would say it. Well, I feel like that's a good word because it makes, it reminds me too of like thinking maybe it's, maybe it'd be helpful for me to envision the the gender fullness, both masculine and feminine traits at the same time when I think about transformation. Mm-hmm. Like that actually feels a little bit more holistic actually to think about um God having all the things that I associate with gender fully encompassed mm-hmm. in God's self. I was thinking about verse two and the fact that the first nations translation had this butterfly language, which to be clear, isn't actually like the Greek doesn't talk about turning a butterfly, <laughs> turning a caterpillar into a butterfly, but the idea is there. But before we started this episode, Jason was talking to us about how he's an expert on this passage. Oh my gosh. <laughs> He did his dissertation on verse two. I'm going to call that out. You guys, um, that's, that is not how I put it. Just for the record. It's how we put it. We elevated All you. of you people out there listening, I did not say I was an expert. No, we said all. he's an expert. Um, but My you God. named another translation of that verse that you liked and that you did your dissertation on. So I'm wondering if we want to bring that in and talk about verse two a little bit. Yes, I do like the J.B. Phillips translation of verse two. Now, I will say that J.B. Phillips also has a preferential option for the, not the poor, but for the masculine pronouns. Um, So I normally take the J.B. Phillips and just adapt it for my own desire. So the way I would translate the J.B. Phillips would be say, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove and practice that the plan of God is good for you. Um, so that the plan of God for you is good, meets all God's demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Um, I like that remolding language, and we got some of that also in the First Nations translation. And I also like the idea that you may prove and practice so that this is something that we're supposed to put into work, um, and that it's and that it's a move towards maturity, not a move towards this like perfection. Um, but it, it to me, it's, it strikes at the chord of wholeness, which we've tended to focus on more in Searching the Sacred, as opposed to kind of this Greek ideal, you know, realm of the perfect. And so I like that idea of true maturity. I like the idea of practice. I like the idea of remolding. Uh, I think all of that is really, I like the, the, the language of don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Um, I think a lot of people can resonate with the idea of feeling like we're squeezed into a mold by our family, by the world, by a political party, or by our church, or by society, or by social media. I mean, we just tend to feel squeezed into being a certain way. And and here, um, we're being encouraged to not do that. And I think that's really meaningful. So one of the observations from my research, because I did spend too much time 
reading commentaries and researching this and reading articles, is that one of the consensus ideas that scholars have come to is that, and this is kind of a no-duh moment, but also uh, I think it's pretty important, is that this is not a God-only activity being done to a human being or done to humanity. It's it's often seen as a partnership between humanity and God, that there's an effort we put into to say, I'm not going to let myself be squeezed into the mold that's around me, but instead I'm going to turn myself over or allow myself to be molded by the spirit or by God. And so there's a real, there's a real action on the part of the human while also there being an equal powerful action on the part of God. So it's a partnership between God and humanity to do this remolding around how we see our our place in the world, how we see how our actions contribute to the plan that God has. Um, We might even want to use the arc of justice language here. So if we're moving towards, you know, justice, moving towards love or wholeness, then um, there's a, a partnership between humanity and the divine in this moment. I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna ask the experts more questions. Oh dear God! <laughs> I can't keep playing with that. I'll I'll stop. Um, but no. <laughs> but actually, I also don't know Greek very well. You guys both know Greek better than I do. And so, this question when I when I think about that partnership language that you're naming, I'm noticing the so that in the verse that the reason you're having your mind renewed is so that you may discern or prove what what is good, which has this energy still of like the human has a role to play in discerning what the human should do. And the reason you want your mind renewed is so that you're a good discerner. And I'm wondering about that Greek word that's there that I'm going to have one of you say, because I'll probably mispronounce it. Dokimadzo. I think it's dokimadzo, I think. Um, So it's, it's translated as prove, discern, allow, examine. Um, test. Yeah, some translations use the test or the examine yourself um, language. I, I tend to think I like I like prove. Um, I I think of it sometimes almost like a like either I, I'm I'm proving like a like a, an equation, so I'm going to work this out to the end to see if it like evens out the way it's supposed to, like a math equation. Or I think of it like bread, like rising. So instead of prove, it's like proof. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna see this through to make sure that the outcome is like the thing that I want. And so, um, if the yeast is w- operating well with the other elements, then this thing should rise and it should create this beautiful loaf that I can then eat. Um, so I, I, I tend to like use more metaphors than I do like, okay, what's the specific translation there? Lisa, you got anything more on that? Are you looking at something else? Uh, no. Well, I'm kind of just like, re- it's funny how different the, the translation is from like what I hear that's like, feels like what's on people's walls versus what I read. So like I was going back into it because I was tr- thinking about um, what I understood this verse to mean so often is that um, our job is to discern the will of God so that then we can make really great decisions. But like for many of us, that question of like, well, I don't think I can discern the will of God means that I don't move into then 
action because I don't actually feel like there's like, I feel like I have to have some sort of like foreknowledge in order to like do the thing. Like I got to understand it. I got to know how to do this before I do it. When I was in the, um, in the first nations version, it, it felt much more like, um, that I'll know it. That somehow, like we we actually know what to do, like that that actually is like <laughs> that's less of the work is the knowing, or like making it like making the perfect whatever. It just felt like it was more like you will know for sure, which means if you know for sure, then you can move, then you know what, to, then you you're moved to action. Well, because what what I the reason I was asking about that word is in part is when I think about the narrative arc that's come before in the Hebrew scriptures, the order of this in Greek, as I'm seeing it, is discerning, proving, testing what is good. Will comes later. And when I pair it that way, when I have good come first, I think about all the times in the Hebrew scriptures, there's conversation about doing what is good in your eyes. And that whether or not what we're doing that's good in our eyes is matching what would be in God's eyes and how this feels very connected to that thread. As we look at the characters in the old Testament, are we seeing them is the, is the good in their eyes, the good that God would have them do. And what if it is similar here, just a different, different time, different context, different language of like, learn to do what is good in your eyes and learn to have that action match. What would be good in God's eyes? Okay. This is a monumental thing to say because we like you guys have been saying we often want people to already know exactly what the future should look like and then do the thing that gets us there as opposed to being learners that are willing to get it wrong and make adjustments and we hold people to a standard set in the future for what they did in their past and i get it right if someone does something wrong and we find out about it like some of that needs to be named and called out and, and made sure that it's not being repeated. But sometimes someone can be doing the best thing they thought they could do. And then it turns out to have actually been not the right thing. I mean, how many times did we pass laws that we thought were like a good idea, but then ended up harming someone or, or, or being a bad policy. And then we need to go and correct those things. I mean, this is why we have the system that we do. It's, it's supposed to be a corrective system. But instead, it just becomes a see how stupid you were and how awful you were and how mean you were. And we don't allow anyone to grow or to learn or to adapt or to change. Um, and, and I think that's where, as humans, we we don't hold a developmental posture. We hold a fixed posture towards everyone. Like, this is the only version of you I'm ever going to get, as if you're not human and you're not going to grow. Um, and that's just not the way humans are meant to be. Like. And I don't think that's the way God is. I think God is evolving with us. Not that God isn't perfect or wonderful or whatever, but like I think God is always in the mess with us and is always working with us. I mean, this if we're going to talk about a with us God, a God who is present with humanity, a God who becomes Emmanuel, God with us, like then of course God's going to be adaptive and going to be um, willing to figure this out with us. Not that God doesn't know what justice looks like or doesn't know what love looks like or mercy looks like, but like understands that it's going to take us a minute to figure this out. And we're not robots. So like there's a, there's a, I'm working with you on this and I want you to evaluate as you go. If you really think this is the right thing. Um, 
And doing that is human. And doing that is transformation. Doing that is growth. Doing that is learning. Doing that is proving through practice. It makes me think about the way the metaphor or like the things keep going into the body of Christ from this verse too. And like, if everybody, like the body of Christ wouldn't move if everybody just kept sitting there discerning, like, like that it takes some trying. It takes, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise it would just be a sleeping body of Christ, which I think we have encountered sleeping body of Christ (laughs) in our lives of like people who claim to be people of faith, weren't doing anything to make the world better and how it feels like there's a lack of action. And that there's real consequences mm. to the lack of trying. Um, the body of Christ stays stagnant instead of moving. And the narrative of scripture says faith is about moving. But it also says faith is about adapting. And I think that so so I think that that too often the history of Christianity has been two false things. One, it's all about discerning and we don't do anything. Or it's all about, well, this is the way we do it. Because this is what was handed down to us. This is our tradition. This is what the Bible says. And so we're going to do it this way, no matter if it's actually harming people or not. You know, Mm -hmm. we're going to defend this. We're going to fight for this. We're going to argue for this. We're going to protest this. We're going to, you know, do this. And, and, and it, and it ends up actually like, you know, you know, you're hurting people, right? Like, you know, that that's actually pushing people further away from a Christ-like understanding of faith. And and the defense is, well, but we're doing it the way the Bible taught us to. And it's like, but did it? Did it? Or did you did you interpret it a certain way? And then you forgot to evaluate it to see if it actually was the kind and just and good thing to do. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah. Well, I think that in the you talked, I don't know if it was before we pressed record or not, but about about the ongoing nature of verse two of like, can we keep being renewed? Can we keep transforming? Is How do we have this be a part of the process of our lives that's ongoing? And so that's really hitting at different versions of what that process might look like individually and corporately. Mm-hmm. It's, it's super interesting when I think about like ongoing change, that reminds me very much of um, like what's required for folks who are incarcerated. Like they have to have ongoing change all the time Mm. in order for it to be something where they can get released or that they can get released early or um, there's a particular weight on, on consistently evolving and changing that gets placed on them different. And the weight of it is different. It feels very different. It feels super weighty. Um, And in lots of ways it feels confusing or not sure what they're shooting for. Like when they're asked to like, how do you pay back for society what you did while you're still incarcerated? Like, how do you, how do you do that? Like, mm-hmm. when you can't be with a community, how do you pay back a community? And, um, but damn, if they don't work so hard at it, they try so hard to figure it out. They try so hard to take the classes, to do the work, to move to new places, to try risky things, to find the courage to, um like jump into really unknown situations. I just, I, and then I juxtapose that with a lot of people in my life that the older I get people, my parents age get, it feels like there's a, there's eventually like a stop, like I'm done evolving. Um, 
And that's not true for everyone, but it does feel like there's less urgency at some point, Mm. but it also feels like a lot of the wisdom is stored up there. So how do you um, like continue to stay in it, continue to stay evolved, to not get tired, to not be discouraged, to, I don't know. I don't know, it's just interesting to me. Like it's, you know, if you have somebody on top of it making you change, that feels different <laughs> than if you're left to your own devices and you just get to pick like would you like to would you like to evolve today or no? Mm-hmm. Or would you like to just stay home and watch Netflix? <laughs> or Wheel of Fortune or do your crossword puzzle? I don't know. Like whatever things that are a way to check out. Mm. Wow. Well, I think evolving goes to verse one, because the way this starts is that we're offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. And there's a way that that I I do a lot of work in the Enneagram realm of what I do. There's a lot of conversations about ego. And to me, this feels like, can we submit to the ongoing death of ego? Mm. Um. And that's what people get tired of and why we stop transforming is we just don't want to keep giving up our ego because our ego makes us feel safe. Our ego makes us feel like we're in control. Our ego makes us feel like we're powerful. And that that all those sound damn delightful, powerful, comfortable. Like I was like, oh, I do want to feel those things. Yeah. And so to keep, and especially because when, when we're submitting to the death of our ego, we're submitting to like losing hold of the things that have made us feel safe in the past so that we can take hold of the things that actually help us grow in the future. And that, that, that is so hard because our ego forms, our egos aren't bad in and of themselves. They form as a part of us getting to adulthood. It is necessary to form an ego in order to become an adult. We have to differentiate ourselves from our parents. We have to different, like it's a part of that differentiation of individualization of a human being, but then maturity means starting to let that ego die. And a lot of people never do that because it's so dang hard to change those things that were a part of our life for so long. But there's, to me, there's this progress in this passage where I I just hear this sort of natural um, transition from verse one, let yourself be a living sacrifice, submit to the death of the ego. As you submit to the death of the ego, your mind can be formed into something new. You're changing those neurotransmitter patterns that you've had since you were eight years old that fought back against the bully in certain ways, whatever those things were that made you feel safe, let those things be shifted so that you can discern what is actually good, not just what helps you. Because the ego is just concerned about helping yourself. Allow your mind to be transformed into something more than that. Through that, in verse three, you'll learn to not think of yourself as more highly than other people. Because when you submit to the death of the ego, you see the humanity as all being good and human. And then when you're in that spot, we can live as the body of Christ differently. Because now I'm not doing the things I'm gifted in doing for my own ego benefit. I'm doing them as a part of a humble, renewed, transformed human that is out for the good of all humanity. And how can I submit into that over and over and over again and submit to that process of I'm going to sacrifice my ego 
put into practice ways that I can be renewed, live in humility, and act as the body of Christ. It's it's almost like Paul and Jesus had something going when Paul writes this and when Jesus says, like, you know, die to yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me, right? Like, I mean, that's like the simplest version of what Jesus calls on his followers to do. And here Paul is echoing the exact same thing. And, you know, psychology is catching up to it, right? Like, um, it, it's kind of amazing, actually. Well, because it really is like living sacrifice can feel like very religious language that might even have a lot of baggage for people. But really, that is language that is mimicked in therapy rooms everywhere. Like there's ways that we have to let our ego die in order to mature. There's things that we have as habitual patterns and habits and protection mechanisms that just are not actually good for us. And yeah, I mean, if you, if you, you feel like you feel safety in them mm-hmm. or they served you well. Like one of the things we talk about um, often inside of the prison is that there's a lot of skills we've learned from young like from a young age, there's different ways that you learned how to survive trauma that happened to you. And there's things you picked up that helped you survive it. Like everybody has survived it. They're still alive and functioning, even in a prison setting. And beginning to realize like those things did serve you well. Those were good skills to have. Like they got you here and they got you here. So how do you, like what things have Mm. to, what things you have to get rid of, what things feel like comfort and being known that aren't actually helpful. Um, and that is some scary work because that means you are really having to look at all kinds of ways that you set up your safety for yourself and to believe that it's possible that you can do it differently is it's hard to imagine it when it's never worked out. I think that's such an important point to say. It's hard to imagine when it hasn't worked out because what you're implying there, what you're saying there without saying it specifically is that. What hasn't worked out is that the system or the family or the caretakers or the, the 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 group of people that you were a part of didn't allow for your own flourishing to take place so that the ego could naturally die and be and, and you're okay. Be, because instead you needed to cling to it and fight and flight and all the things and, and it resulted in in being here, right? That's how, how you put it. And and then we got to let go of that, but also what letting go of it means trying to retrust or, 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 or have hope once again, that maybe I'm a part of a collective body that won't let me down or that will let me down, but not in such a way that leads back to this, or that I have to go back to fighting and scratching and clawing for my own existence. And, and that, that is incredibly scary to like, you know, to move from an I to a we, because you're trusting that other people are also moving from an I to a we. Um, and and the dangerous thing in humanity is when someone moves from an I to a we, like I'm no longer, I'm going to let my ego go and be a part of a bigger thing. But the bigger thing is actually run by someone who's only thinking about an I, right? And that that's when we get dictators and we get cult leaders and we get people that just do whatever pastor says because, you know, pastor said it. And and sometimes the pastor's great and it's okay. You know, it can be kind of okay, but other times it can be really damaging because we're not part of a we where everyone's letting go of their ego 
putting their gifts to work for the betterment of everyone else. Sometimes they're using the system to benefit just themselves. And well, I think that can get I really think dangerous. That part of that hits Jason at like a false humility of like the idea, the progression here of being a living sacrifice is you die to ego, but in verse two, you continue to keep your agency as a discerner yes. of what is good. Yes. So you cannot go from verse one to verse four, because that's when the body of Christ is dangerous. If everybody just dies to themselves and like follows blindly, that's not what we're talking about. Right. We're talking good. about death of ego, but keep discerning what is good yes. and be humble and function as a part of a whole. Yes. Right. And if you, cause I feel like that, I mean, God, that feels like such an important, um, like what feels like a lot of the miss, I think in some of my like lived church experiences is there's a miss somewhere. And like the expectation is that people like, it's kind of like, I mean, the language of like feed yourself. I can't, it makes me really uh, queasy to even say it. Cause that was part of like, we need pe people got to be able to like read the Bible for themselves, but we sure don't want them interpreting it for themselves. Like we want you to read it. We want you to have an understanding of it, but we want it to be the understanding that we have of it. Like you're going to get this wrong. So we want to make sure you get this right. And it's this interesting thing of like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, pause in the middle of there. Are you still discerning what's good? Don't, mm -hmm. you can't give up that part of your agent. Like, you can't give that up. That's actually part of what makes this work is if we're all putting that lens of like trying to consider like, is this? What? Are we sure? Are we able to ask the questions? Mm -hmm. Well, it makes me, I, I, you use the word agency, like giving up our ego is different than giving up our agency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We give up our ego and keep our agency as co-creators who are, have a role to discern and a role to do. And how do we have that flow? It makes me, oh God, like the number of times, um, like meeting with people to talk about, like, they just don't know what their gifts are. They don't know what they're supposed to do or they, they aren't sure how to like, there's just a lot of questions about it, but they, they turn towards folks who are like employed by the church to get the answer. Mm -hmm. And like, partly I'm going to say, you ask the people around you, <laughs> they all know better than any pastor and any paid staff will, because they actually see you. Mm -hmm. They know you, like they know more of you and who you are and can actually probably give you a better insight to potentially if you can't, if you don't know, that's, I mean, it's just, it's very interesting how much we want to like, I mean, it, again, it feels like that thing of like, we want to get stuff so right. So we're looking for like religious leadership to tell us what's right. So that then we know what to do mm. instead of saying, well, nobody actually like, this is for you to work out. Mm -hmm. They don't know. They're guessing. Mm-hmm. I, it makes me think about this passage in several points has made me think about Hannah, who we did a podcast on not too long ago, because Hannah, we, we, we moved toward this idea of her being the sacrifice that she was moving to, she was moving into the temple and, and into mm -hmm. this space where you're supposed to sacrifice, but she wasn't sacrificing anything. She was sacrificing herself. She was sacrificing something that she wanted and was holding on to that she was letting go of and committing to hold it differently as a, as a part of the sacrifice that she was offering, but she maintained something there at the same time as offering something. And then when we go into what those gifts are, that piece, um, 
the gifts in verse six are according to the grace that is given us. And Hannah's name means grace. Mm. And there's nobody told her what her gift, she knew, she knew what she was called to do. No priest told her that. No, I mean, the priest in that passage thought she was thought drunk. She was drunk. <laughs> like it wasn't religious authority. It was like, she knew there was something in her. There's a metaphor in there. Um, and it's really <laughs> spot on that maybe when we turn to our religious leaders, they're not always the right ones. They're not always the ones discerning. And so like, I, I also think that sometimes we do know what gifts are ours. It's just not the thing that the priest can see or the religious leader can see. And, and like Hannah just trusts that whole process. She, mm-hmm. she offers herself as a sacrifice. She discerns what is good. She does this. And then she ends up giving birth to the prophet Samuel. There's something that feels like this is new, but not new in terms mm-hmm. of how we think about our role in things, um, in terms of the biblical story. That's really good. And I, and I think that, that kind of moves us into that later part that we read where there are these distinctly different, I don't know if we want to say like gifts, I guess is the word that the NRSV uses, the, that we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So there's prophecy, there's ministry, there's teaching, there's encouraging, there's um, there's giving, there's leading, and there's compassion. Um, and those are just the words translated into English that the NRSV uses, so they could be different. And there's probably like a podcast for each of those, so we don't have time to go into each, each one of those. So I think we're just going to talk generally about them. Um, the thing that, that comes to my mind the most quickly, both before we even started recording, as you read it, and and then right now as we're talking about it, is how many times are we either expected because of our role or because we don't want to let go of our ego, do we do things on that list that we have no business doing? So let me, so as a pastor of a small Methodist church where I am the only full-time staff member, I get to wear a lot of those hats in the little ministry context that I have. I'm expected to be a number of things. Um, my admin and I joke about which hat am I wearing today? You know, is it the building manager? Is it the, you know, pastor? Is it the pastor of care? Is it the pastor of teaching? Is it the Bible study leader? Is it the confirmation teacher for the youth? Is it the hospice counselor? You know, like, which hat am I supposed to put on in this moment? That's part of just being a part of a small thing and and having, you know, a limited amount of resources. Also, it's because a lot of people expect me to when they actually have those gifts and I need to empower them to step into those roles, even if it is voluntary to say, you're better at this than I am. This is what God's gifted you to do. So you can go do that instead of me. Um, I think that's okay. Uh, I also think that there's a lot of times where it's really tempting to say, I want that hat and I want that hat and I want that hat and I want that hat because what results is dependency on me, which feeds the ego that I have. And that's where it becomes kind of dangerous. Lisa, you were the one who brought us to body of Christ. You were you were going to bring us to 1 Corinthians 12. We derailed and went to Romans 12 instead. But part of why we're here is because we were paying attention. When Lisa says we should go to Paul, 
there's something there. <laughs> so doesn't happen often. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, you named a few things before I of like what had you thinking about gifts right now in this season as we go into 2024? Um, well, I think there's just, I think I'm always wrestling with like, what's mine to do. Um, and what, you know, like, yeah, like, where am I supposed to be spending my time? How do I spend my time? And where am I volunteering and just like doing something because this is what, like, I can like, so like do that. Um, and it sometimes feels like there's like 50 million directions I can get pulled in. And like this passage makes me like, partly it's like, it doesn't assume that you're gifted in all of it. <laughs> it just kind of says, if you have this gift <laughs> and I'm like, Oh yeah. Like some ways it's like, it's like leaning into that strength. And I think for me, like part of the wrestle is that my freaking strengths just always appear in places that, um, don't have financial like resources, which is not like I'm not struggling for financial resources. That's not, but it also means that I've been, but I'm not doing the things that everybody else is doing. And then it feels a little bit like, well, geez, am I getting like, am I valued for the things I have? Do, is it the right value? Am I missing something? Um, like, I, like I had a conversation with somebody that was talking about one of their friends getting, they're like getting like a $200,000 bonus. I was like, holy smokes. What do they do? <laughs> you know, like having these conversations, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that, that is so far outside of the scope of what I do. And so then I kind of get stuck in like the feeling of being really small, like, it just feels really small and insignificant then like the things that have value in this world, the things that have like that get paid a lot of money. And then I'm like, I don't know why I'm so caught up in the money bullshit. Cause I don't know that I want to be, but I also like, there's, it just, it swirls so heavy. And then when, and then when the world gets like chaotic and there's so much violence and horrific things and like the amount of like, I don't, I don't know. That just makes it all feel even more like, I, like how do you be significant where you like are and let yeah. that be enough? Like, how is it both significant? Oh, oh, hold on. Hold on. How do you repeat it? Let yourself be significant where you are. And let that be enough. Let that be enough. Ooh. Because there's, I think the church has a different version or religious contexts have a different version of what you're saying, where it's not about finances, but it is about particular roles. So I'm thinking about our experience at 40 Orchards of how important it is for us, uh, you and I, Lisa, to be co-leaders, co-directors, even though I facilitate groups more often. Because the tendency in religious context is to say, well, that, that teacher, whoever that teacher is, that's really the important role. That's the leader, the person with more executive gifts, administration gifts, pastoral gifts, that helps the person who's more forward. And we are like, no, no, this place, 40 Orchards does not function without both of us. 
it does not matter who is doing what more often we are together and it doesn't work not together. And that that elevation of title felt really important as a corrective to the fact that we don't live as religious people like the body of Christ stuff is true. Even as what you were saying, Jason, with like delegating things, what happens a lot in churches is the things that get delegated are the like sweeping the bathroom tasks. Mm -hmm. Um, The things that don't get delegated is the stage tasks, Mm -hmm. right? Because, because there's, we just so easily have a hierarchy of some sort and in the world it tends to be about money and power in the church it tends to be about a different kind of power (laughs) and how do we just stop it how do we let significance where we are be enough Mm. it's hard whether it's no matter the context that's hard but it's how is the future dependent on it really Yeah, it's hard for so many factors, right? And and Lisa, you're naming a, a really vulnerable one, but also a really meaningful one of like when the world puts a dollar sign on what you're contributing, it's not it's not hard to wonder, well, I could probably lean into this other strength. Even though it's probably not my my best gift, it's probably not my best offering to the world. It's not the best thing I could lay down, but it would sure help. <laughs> um, yeah, that's 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 hard. I'm going to make it lighthearted for a moment because I don't want the episode to end without. Well, maybe it's lighthearted. I'm just thinking if my children ever hear this episode, they're going to be mortified what I'm about to do. <laughs> because all I keep thinking about is the word of the year in 2023. The word of the year in 2023 is Riz. And that's in this verse. <laughs> because the gifts, the word gifts is charisma. Um, and according the your charisma differs according to the charis, grace given to you. But what I'm thinking of is everybody's got Riz. Know what's wow. yours. <laughs> We sound like old people right now. Oh, well, it's well, so embarrassing. On, no, I'm like, you it is sound, so embarrassing that I'm going to use this word. We have hit. <laughs> yeah, you sound like an old person right now. <laughs> For sure. I'm like, that's why I'm like, this is going to be hilarious. Good mom energy. It's good oh, mom energy. It's such a mom I'm just energy. Gonna, it's a mom energy. It's fine. But like, honestly, like, what if everybody has Riz? What if everybody, what this is saying, it's using the word charisma for every gift. Hmm. That's the Greek word for the gifts being used here is everybody has charisma. Know which charisma is yours. That's not how we think about charisma. And maybe, maybe even like to add, like, not just know what's yours, but be able to see theirs as Riz, mm. right? Like, it's not just about you figuring out yours. It's also about you seeing other people. I don't know. Like, yeah. Affirm that in other people. See it. Celebrate mm-hmm. it. Do the. You know, there's areas of our society where we do this really, really simply. Um, you see it on like, honestly, this is stupid, but you see it in successful sports teams. There's different there's different positions, right? There's different positions that get paid different amounts of money. And some are not glorified. Some will never go to a Hall of Fame. Some will never get a big paycheck or be on a commercial or whatever or get a shoe named after them. And yet 
a functioning, healthy team recognizes that every single person in that locker room, including the trainers and the managers and the bag carriers, are people that are that have a job to do and have a, have riz, have a charisma, have a gift that they are there to offer for the betterment of the bigger thing. And when it works really well, it actually works really well. Like you can just see the camaraderie that takes place. And it there there becomes a lack of hierarchy. Even if some even if the world wants to celebrate one or two people, there there becomes a a a sense of collegiality within that. Um and, and it can be really beautiful to see. And and when you get stories that come out about teams like that, it it's really inspiring to hear about it because I think in our world we just we we experience it so little um mm-hmm. that it can be really, really cool. My my son, just to make that a personal example, my my younger son plays soccer and um, his coach, so the, it, this is a group of 13, 14 year olds. His coach last season did something that I loved, which is he had everybody on the team look for a professional soccer player who played similarly to them mm-hmm. and to emulate and figure out what that person was doing. And the team was helping each other pick their players in a way that was honoring how each other played to say, like, not everybody is going to pick Messi. Yeah. Because a team can't be made up of Messi's, even though he's a, the record setter, like he's the name everybody knows, but like he can't be himself unless other people are playing these other roles. And so I loved that idea of having middle schoolers figure out who is actually your player to emulate. Um, because that person's out there. And I wonder if that adds to it for us too, as part of recognizing those gifts for each other is like, can we see who's out there for us to emulate? Who are the people who've gone before us and lived that way with a different set of gifts? Are they there? (laughs) Have we found them? So as we think about 2024, what do we want to take with us from this episode? What do we want to do with this? I think to me, it's the the combination of how do we continue to be an, a, a transforming person that has agency, doesn't give up our agency, but keeps transforming while also looking for the Riz and everybody else around us and naming it and encouraging it. (laughs) I feel like 2024 is going to be an exercise in like doing, like really trying to put out good stuff into the world um, and laboring. Like there, there is going to be some laboring, um, for some of the hard stuff and the pain that's in the world and the violence and um, yeah. And figuring out what, what is the work is that is mine to do. And also mentally telling myself that I am doing significant things, even Mm -hmm. when I don't feel like it, it is significant. Um, And just really leaning into that for myself. I'm thinking about, that death of the ego piece enabling it 
like the living sacrifice is the starting point enables me to use my gifts in a way that's not egocentric and that that shifts how I do what's mine to do. Like that energy of like, I don't need it to look good to other people. I don't need to follow the same things everybody on social media is posting about. There's so many things that seem like the right thing to do or the good thing to do that are actually ego things to do. Like I, because I feel this all the time. I feel like, oh, everybody else is posting about that. I probably should do that. Um, but like those kinds of things are really, that's ego. That's not, that's not really discerning what is good. Not that it's bad to jump on all those trends, but it, it just like, how does it shift how I use my gifts and discern what is good if I take ego out of the equation? That's my question. Good luck y'all in your 2024. <laughs> Live into your Riz. <laughs> May the Riz be with you. <laughs> this has been a 40 Orchards podcast. At 40 Orchards, our mission is to create circles for all people to wrestle through biblical text so that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. We search through the lens of sacred possibility, assuming there is more to be discovered, questioned, and applied as we listen for how God is still speaking. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40, that's 40orchards.org. Our opening music is by Less FM. Our closing music is by NCR Music Vibes. Additional music is by 3Music. Any references to books or other sources can be found in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for searching the sacred.